God, we ask for help this morning as we open this text. There are ways, Lord, that we could read this and attempt to somehow manufacture the strength or the energy to to do something that might be required of us in order to gain your approval, gain your blessing. And yet, at the heart of this passage, we see grace, sheer grace. We see a cross. We see our Savior. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you'd make those things known to us in such a way that they would stir us and move us out to grow to a faith that, uh, Lord, continues to sanctify us, make us more like your son. We pray of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And as I say every year, the, the word Advent comes from the Latin, Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And one of the reasons we commemorate Advent at Gospel Life Church is because we find it super helpful. This season is helpful. It's helpful to have a time to reflect on the incarnation of Jesus something that we do all year, but there's a very unique way in which we can do it now, reflect on the incarnation. We reflect on his arrival into human history, the word putting on flesh and dwelling among us. And we reflect on the anticipation of God's people leading up to the birth of Christ, leading up to that incarnation, right? So we remember that this promise was given in then hundreds of years, you know, and there's hundreds of years of even silence in which God's people are saying, My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? And so we light these candles. We we celebrate Advent as a means of remembering that, that longing, that waiting. We wait for Christmas morning together, right? But it also gives us a chance to to reflect on our own season of waiting right now as believers. We are waiting because Jesus is coming again. There's a second Advent in which Jesus will come, he'll put all things to rights, he'll make all things new, or to say it another way, this is the season of waiting for Christmas morning, in which we remember how God is making things new, because Jesus has come, he is doing that presently, he is saving presently, and also a season of waiting on Jesus to come and make all things new in this broken world, because he's coming again. And so it's in this season of Advent that we can fail to see And I say this a lot, but we fail to see the symbols, the signs that point to this kind of waiting, this longing, this anticipation, mostly because I think we've grown um, desensitized to them. Of course, they've been commercialized, but uh, pointed this out before, this is a time of year where it gets much darker much earlier, right? So we step outside in the morning, you know, (laughs) we go to leave for work and it's dark outside. You know, or maybe you wake up for school and it's like, this is not right. This, doesn't, this does not feel like I should be awake right now. Um, or if you're like me, you're like, you got your coffee in the kitchen and you're like, look at me, up for the sunrise. You know, it's, sure, it's 8 a.m., but, uh, right? So the season where it's like, okay, it's a little darker than it should be. And then on the way home from, ba- you get out of basketball practice at like 5 o'clock, you know, or after school activities, the play that you're a part of, you're done with work and it's dark again, you know, so it's like you're leaving for school in darkness or work in darkness, you're coming home from both in darkness and it's all dark. And at the same time, this is the time of year in the midst of that darkness in, in which neighborhoods, 
town squares, shopping centers are all lit up. We hang lights in the midst of this darkness that shine through in the darkness. Also during this time of year, this time of year leaves have fallen off trees, tall grass plants burn brown, shrivel up. There's this, you know, like trees stand like skeletons, you know, just totally lifeless. There's a big difference between walking Silverwood Park now, which is my habit, versus walking Silverwood Park in the summer, you know, full of life, green, right? And now it's just like this lifelessness, this reminder of death. And yet we have this habit this time of year of bringing evergreen trees into our home, hanging branches of green with red holly, signs and signals of life in the midst of death. And like, look, I'm not trying to say at all that everyone who's ever had a Christmas tree or strung lights had this purpose in mind. But I am absolutely saying that whether they were borrowed from other feasts or from whether or not we see them in other practices, those symbols absolutely were intended to mean these things. Why, why are Christmas colors green and red? Because of the green, the, the, the life in the midst of death, the red, the holly, right? So like, okay, these are the symbols that we see throughout John's gospel, life into death, light into darkness. We're talking about John 1, which a few years ago at GLC, we were actually in John 1 for Advent for this very reason, okay? Because we were looking at life into death, light into darkness. Why, why is uh, this such a repeated symbol throughout the scriptures? Well, we live in a world in which there's death and darkness. We don't have to look far to find it. We don't, we don't have to work hard to discover news about it. We don't have to strain our ears to hear about evil that's been perpetrated in the world. Like, we know this is a reality. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, you have this promise spoken of life into death, light into darkness. You know, this first Sunday of Advent is typically marked by a remembrance of this Old Testament promise. You know, so we, we you might be doing an Advent wreath at home, Typically, the first candle is known as like the candle of promise or hope or prophecy. So we're going to say like this is the hope candle. And you might say, well, that's not what my candle is. But it is, so hope, prophecy, promise, three different ways of saying the same thing. This is the, the week of Advent in which we remember this Old Testament promise that was echoed among the prophets that God's people clung on to and sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? And so we light this first candle or we, we try to because... Um, Light into darkness can sometimes be hard to see. The first Advent we ever had as a church together, we were trying to light this candle, and it was like producing tons of smoke, and we couldn't get the thing lit. And then after the service was over, we turned it upside down, and it had a switch at the bottom. <laughs> so sometimes it doesn't go according to plan. But the purpose is to show like there was this light in darkness that was pointing forward, pointing forward to the coming of Christ. You know, there was this light in darkness through the proclamation of the Old Testament, this promise, and now John's gospel accounts sets out to show us this very promise. Right? Do you remember week one, which was in January? Week one of John, when we started um, our series, was at the end of John. John shares his reason for writing. Why? That you may know that the Christ is Jesus. That's really what he's saying. That you might know that this one that you've been longing for, this promised one that's been echoing throughout the Old Testament, he's Christ, he's here, he came, the Advent has come. Okay, so so there's this promise 
we see John showing us Jesus. Um, Paul Burr, last week, so thankful for his time in the text, he helpfully talked about how, from the text, right, seeing Jesus clearly, seeing Jesus for who he is truly stirs our hearts to worship. And that's really what John is after here, having waited for him, waiting for this promised one since the fall of man to come and bring light and life. John shows us Jesus clearly, that he's arrived, the Christ has arrived in the text. And it's here in this set of uh, verses that we find three characteristics of the very promise that week one of Advent is centered on, okay? Um, Starting in verses 9 through 11, where we see the first of these three characteristics. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me now. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here at the front end, right away, what we find is the root of the promise in in these first few verses. The root of the promise, and this root, the reason for the promise, what it is that brings the promise to bear, it's shown to us in a couple of different ways that we're going to see in the text. Because right away in verse 9, there's this large crowd of Jewish people. They're all being drawn to Jesus. And, you know, just obviously, there are a lot of reasons why a crowd would be drawn to Jesus at this point in his ministry, okay? So if you remember from two weeks ago, the religious leaders decided to put him to death. Okay, the, the word was out that they were looking for him. So people were asking, what do you think? Will he come to the feast or not? Will he come to the Passover? Like, is he going to show his face in the midst of all of this rising opposition? There's this, you know, there's this buzz about Jesus in the midst of the people, in the midst of the opposition that's now spilling over into a plot to kill him. And there's a curiosity that's developed even more about Jesus because of what the religious leaders are saying. So the more they oppose him and the more they say, we need to put him to death because of the things he's saying and the things that he's doing, the more the people want to hear what he's saying and see what he's doing. And, you know, his parents, they should have really known that that would happen. As parents, we all know, right? If we give a prohibition to our kids and then we kind of leave it like mysterious, you know, I want to do that thing, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. But, but we actually don't have to speculate about the reason this large crowd gathers because the text tells us straightforwardly. They were coming to see Jesus, but they were coming to see Jesus. Why? Because they'd heard that he'd brought life where, where there was death. Very specifically, they'd heard that he'd raised raised Lazarus from the dead, so they wanted to see this for themselves. Because if you remember, after Jesus raised Lazarus, leaves right away for Ephraim, only a handful of people have seen him up to to that point, his disciples, you know, the family of Lazarus, Lazarus himself. But now the report goes out, everyone's drawn in. Lazarus is a huge part of the draw in the text. You know, why? Because... The root of the promise that we find related to the the Messiah is actually found in the curse and its undoing. The curse and its undoing. That's at the root of the promise. In other words, you can't talk about the promise without talking about the curse. I'm going to say that again. It's important for us to understand. At Advent, when we light the candle of hope or the candle of promise, the candle of prophecy, you can't talk about the promise without talking about the curse. It makes no sense. The promise isn't something that follows as particularly good news or helpful unless you're talking about the curse. So 
The good news, another way of saying this is, the good news that we find in the Scripture of acceptance by God through sheer grace through faith in Jesus Christ makes no sense as like good news unless we also talk about the bad news of death and, and rightly deserved judgment. You know, and there's, there's a way to talk about the gospel in which in modern times we try to like end around the, the bad news part with a presentation of gospel that I think leaves people very much wanting. You know, they kind of shrug their shoulders and they're like, well, what's, I mean, I guess that's okay news. Like, it's very easy. I mean, it's, it's been my experience, especially in student conferences, where you go and, and the, the gospel proclaimed can often be something like, do you want a friend? You need a friend. We all need friends. Jesus wants to be your friend. The good news is, like, there are times when you're lonely. Well, Jesus will never leave you. Do you want a friend? Well, today I received Jesus as your friend. And that's kind of where it's at. And it's like, you want to say, the fact that, that God calls us friend, that Jesus calls us friend, is that good news? Yes! Totally it's good news. Why is it good news? Because we were enemy rebels who had set ourselves against him as enemies, who hated the idea of being with him. And yet in the midst of that, he came to make a way for us to be called friends, to have a seat at his table, to live in his kingdom. Like, it's amazing news. But without that part, it's like, well, I mean, I got friends, you know? I'm not sure that Jesus is the kind of friend that I want culturally, you know? I'm not totally sure if that's really the friend that I need, you know? So it's like the promise of life into the world makes no sense apart from the reality of death. But right away, the people see the root of the promise because here was the primary aspect of the curse. Like, like Pete Johnson was talking about it a few weeks ago in that quote, right? Like the, the root of the curse is death. It's right in front of them once again. Something that they weren't unfamiliar with. Lazarus in the tomb, front row seat. And here comes Jesus to raise him back to life. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's a foreshadowing of the life that Jesus would offer through what he would accomplish for us by way of his own death and resurrection. So it's like Lazarus is raised to die again, but Jesus would come to raise us to life everlasting, right? So it's a foreshadowing of what, what's coming, right? It's meant to, but, it, but it is meant to signal that the curse is being undone, that the, that the curse ender is here. It's like, it's, it's meant to, to signal that, it, that it's starting, you know, like he's arrived. It, it's not unlike the, the snow melting in Narnia, right? The snow is melting around the Pevensey children and around the white witch, her, her, her sled doesn't move very well anymore. It's like, it's a sign that Aslan's on the move, you know, that he's arrived. Okay, so on the one hand, we see the curse and its undoing in the drawing of this crowd. People are drawn to the hope that it gives. There's an undoing of the curse that just for obvious reasons has brought out people to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus. And so one application point here for us would be, since we're meant to like, like, like Lazarus is evidence of the curse being undone. His life bears witness to it. It's testimony of it. But you know what else is? Your life with Christ. The fact that you're a believer in Jesus is just as much of a miracle as Lazarus being raised from the dead. The fact that God has brought you from darkness to light, from death to life, is just as much of a miracle. We don't think of it in those terms, but it's sheer miracle. It's miraculous because you would not have come to that conclusion on your own. And so your life with Christ now 
as a Christian, bears witness to a world of evidence of the ending of the curse. Right? And so you go bear witness about it. Jesus in your life, share your testimony, evidence of the curse being undone. And don't get ashamed of, of that testimony. Don't think like, well, my testimony is not very exciting. You know, I think that's something I hear a lot. And I get it. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. Christian parents came to faith at an early age, had a moment of faith crisis, you know, put my faith in Christ. I, again, kind of renewed my faith in Christ. But testimonies where you grow up in the church, sometimes like we tend to think, well, I didn't like do a bunch of drugs, drink a bunch of alcohol, have this like gang experience and then come back. You know, like we tend to think that it has to be this extraordinary. You know what's an extraordinary story? Anyone going from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you know what else is an extraordinary story? God bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life in a Christian home and keeping you, you know, for years in his grace and mercy. Okay, so application point, your life with Christ bears witness. Go bear witness. Okay, go bear witness. Um, but okay, there's another. This, this undoing of the curse, future undoing of the curse, it's a picture of that. Lazarus was raised to die again. Curse is still active in the world. Jesus has power over it. That's a big deal because right away in Genesis 3, death enters the world, but right away in Genesis 3, like why are, why are people, why, why, are, why are they so curious? Well, right away in Genesis 3, there's a promise given. Nine lessons and carols. Um, the vast majority of like Christian uh, Christmas liturgies start with Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is an Advent text. This is a Christmas text. Death is the immediate result of the curse, but there would be a promised one who would come to undo the curse. And this is why Christmas carols that we sing, like Joy to the World, say things like, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So as far as the curse extends and farther, as Lewis would say later on, further up and further in, as far as it goes, God's blessings flows out more, brings an end to the curse in all of these ways. So we see the curse and its undoing in the drawing of this crowd to see Lazarus for themselves. On the other hand, we see the curse on full display in a different way, specifically the reaction of the religious leaders, because look at verses 10 and 11 again. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. So again, like we said two weeks ago, it doesn't really matter whether or not Jesus to the Pharisees it do, and to the religious leaders, to the, to the chief priests, it doesn't matter whether Jesus actually raised Lazarus. And in fact, they assume he did. And they've also come to the conclusion that there's no other explanation for that other than God being involved. So they're not, you don't find here like, oh, he didn't really raise him. Actually, They've really come to the conclusion that this appears to have happened, or at the very least, they don't have any pushback against it. But this is the insidiousness of sin. Apart from the grace of Christ, we will always naturally see God as enemy. We'll set ourselves against him. We'll despise him. Why? Because he did something evil? No, no, no quite the contrary. Because of his goodness, because we want to do what we want to do, you know? Our, our, our heart wants what, what it wants, which is not him. And, and so, here we see that because just being alive, like having a pulse, 
provided a ground for others to believe in Jesus, Lazarus had to be put to death too. You know? This is the extent of, of the wickedness. It's the extent of the curse. Lazarus dies tragically. He's miraculously raised. But such is the hatred for the author of life that the plan is to undo his authorship and bring death. You know? Such is the hatred for the one who raised Lazarus, that Lazarus must be killed. So here we see the nastiness and hypocrisy brought about by sin. The religious leaders seeing resurrected life and plotting its murder. It's the very opposite of what Jesus came to do. The very opposite. Okay, so in a couple of different ways here, first we've seen the root of the promise, the curse and its undoings. We've seen it in the people's response, like the curse is being undone. Aslan's on the move. The snow is melting. We want to see this for ourselves Um, The curse and its undoing, we see the curse on full display in the religious leader's uh, response to it. But secondly, that leads us to the revelation of the promise. So there's there's this curse, but then the promise is revealed. The promise is shown to us. And again, it's shown in a couple of different ways, starting in verses 12 through 13. The next day, the, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, so the next day, so they were, they were eating with Lazarus, reclining at the table next to Jesus on Saturday, and here we have Sunday, Palm Sunday. We've officially entered into Passion Week in John's account. So this can be hard to believe, right? And we need to wrap our minds around it a bit because we're in John 12, And there's 21 chapters. We're only a little past halfway, okay? But for the rest of the account, we're in the final week of Jesus' life. And that's going to take us all the way to Easter on March 31st, okay? So this is where we're going to be, folks, this last week of Jesus' life. We're hanging out here leading up to the cross. We're hanging out here until Good Friday, Easter Sunday of March uh, 31st, last weekend of March. Okay, and the, the large crowd here and those who'd come to the feast demonstrating um, that they're made up mostly of pilgrims of the surrounding regions, they come out to, to see what's happening, to shout this Hosanna. And to give you an idea of how busy Jerusalem would have been during this time, so Josephus is helpful here. The Passover, um, he describes the Passover 30 years later, 66 AD, right on the cusp of the Jewish wars, where he says 2,700,000 people participated in Jerusalem in the Passover. So uh, this, this did not um, count those who would have been foreigners or were, who were considered to be defiled according to Jewish law, according to Jewish custom. So um, the number of people in Jerusalem at this point is perhaps even over 3 million. And at least part of the reason that's important is because, listen, the people who are coming and waving these branches... Most of them are probably not from Jerusalem. And sometimes we can get a bit, we can get overly clever here. And I'm guilty in my younger days as pastor of getting a little overly clever. And we say pretty commonly, well, they were yelling Hosanna on Sunday and and crucify him by Good Friday. But I think that's, you know, I think that's oversimplistic. And I think... As a gen- certainly there were some, very likely anyways. But as a general statement, it's much more complicated than that. Because listen, I think those that, 
think about the, the, the two different like, responses to Jesus that we've seen throughout this. So I think those that yell Hosanna here are made up of people who are pilgrims into Jerusalem from the surrounding regions. Many of them have come to some kind of faith, whether spurious or genuine. They've, they've come to some kind of faith in Jesus, but they're not made up of those who've responded by way of rejection and opposition and trying to seize him and arrest him. That's a different crowd, and I think it's largely those people who are, who are shouting, crucify him on Good Friday. And so I think we can, can conclude a couple of different things from that observation. First, the revelation of the promise is being made known by the people, okay? The people, kind of the, the here in, in, the, in our text, in our text, they're the first revealers of the promise because, listen, um, they're absolutely right to yell Hosanna. They're waving these palm branches that, that symbol that are a symbol of Jesus being a king, a kingly figure. And they're yelling, Hosanna, save now, save now. So they're absolutely right to attribute to Jesus what they're attributing to him. But second, at the very same time, their proclamation is incomplete. And it's one of the reasons I think Jesus weeps on his way into Jerusalem because the people, despite the fact that they're yelling these things, they don't understand what they shout. Many of them who, who confess faith in him at this point I don't think they're yelling crucify him, but I think they, they do miss him because they don't know what he's centrally come to save them from. These would be like the Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. So, so Cleopas and his companion, you know, imagine them shouting, Hosanna, come, he's here. And then he, he's crucified. And so they leave disenchanted, discouraged on this road to Emmaus where they're like, we thought he was the one to save us. We thought he was the one to deliver us, right? So I think that's the general sense, is that these people will miss him in the midst of not understanding what he's come to save them from because they only see that their need to be saved from Roman oppression. I mean, listen, the very palm, so the palm branches are a kingly symbol, but they're also, look, they're a nationalistic symbol of freedom from foreign rule. So they shout, save now, and that's right. But it's incomplete because it becomes pretty clear that what they're desiring to be saved now from is something else entirely than what Jesus came. It's, it's like an effect of it, but it's not the center of it. It's not the root of the promise, right? It's not the curse as they understand it. So, like, for instance, look at the context. When Simon the Maccabee drove out Syrian forces in Jerusalem, which is what um, many people are getting ready to celebrate at Hanukkah, Simon the Maccabee driving out these Jewish forces, finally bringing this uh, freedom to God's people in Jerusalem, he was celebrated coming back into to, to Jerusalem with the waving of palm branches. During the Jewish wars, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the insurgent Jewish forces, the, the rebels against the Roman uh, army, they struck coins with palm branches on them as a symbol for the insurgency. Okay, so what we have here is an is a symbol of nationalistic hope that there would be a Messiah liberator, someone who would come and liberate them from this oppression. And now, think about it, there's another foreign oppressor who stands over them, and they feel the weight of that oppression every day. And so now they see this man who they believe has the power to really put his foot on the neck of their oppressor and keep them down and, and free Israel. They don't see the need to be saved from their sin the very thing that's eating them alive, the most insidious enemy they have, the same enemy that we all have. 
But the revelation of the promise isn't simply seen in the people, right? Because the people express an incomplete revelation. They don't fully understand that how these texts point to Jesus, and we're going to see that in a second. So secondly, we see like the revelation of the promise is, is, is shown to us in the people's proclamation, sure, but, but centrally, it's shown to us in the Word. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So in order to see Jesus rightly, clearly, as Paul talked about last week, Jesus as he's revealing himself, rather than a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus after our own image, believing in Jesus according to his own testimony about who he is, instead of the stuff that we think he can give us, right? If if we're going to do that, we must come to see how the word bears witness about him. We must come to see that everything in the Old Testament is actually about him. So the Old Testament scriptures point forward to him in every way, reminding us of our sin, like showing us our sin, showing us that we can't do this on our own over and over again, pointing forward to a Savior, showing us our need for a Savior. And even in the narratives, we see these types of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. So it's all about him. It's all about him. And so Jesus rides in on a donkey. By doing so, he directly connects himself to multiple kingly proclamations of a future Messiah in the Old Testament, but very straightforwardly from Zechariah, where this is stated, the very passage we were in together when? Last Advent. So last Advent, we were in Zechariah. We were preaching through Zechariah, and that's where we found ourselves at Advent. And we entered into John's gospel. This is very intentional, Right? which pointed to the same coming king. Like, Zechariah was about this coming king, is, the promised one is coming. Don't lose heart. There's a shepherd who will be struck down for his people. There's a true king, a true shepherd. He's coming. And then we get to John chapter 1, and he's here, right? So this is intentional. But the passage that John quotes should bring to mind for his readers, not an earthly king who comes to topple Romans. Let's just do some review. Not, not toppling an earthly oppressor. We talked a lot about that when we preached through Zechariah. And if it would be helpful to you, I'd encourage you just to go back and listen to a handful of those messages where we, where we demonstrated that because we made this direct connection. Like, yes, he, he will bring cessation to war. He will proclaim peace. And Zechariah talks about those things specifically, which is kind of how we built our Advent structure in, in Zechariah last year, okay? So he will do those things. But the coming of the king in Zechariah's writing is associated with, do you remember, the blood, of, the blood of the covenant. The release for prisoners because the, the, the thing that shackled us most deeply and centrally is now dealt with through the blood of Christ, through the blood of the promised one. It's associated with Passover, the very feast they're about to celebrate with the death of the servant king. So remember, Zechariah's writing that a servant king, a shepherd would come and that he would give himself for his people. He would become a slaughtered sheep for the sheep doomed to slaughter. In other words, the means he would use to do these things, that this king would do these things would be through a cross. And by it, the enemy he would come to topple would be the enemy sin and death itself. And so we see, we see evidence of the fact that it's like, okay, they didn't understand these things at first. They weren't making these connections yet. But verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So, so we remember like at the end of Luke, that same like Cleopas and his friend on the way to, to Emmaus, Jesus shows up. And what does he do? It says that he he showed them in all the scriptures how it pointed to him, how it was all about him. 
So, so Jesus, and then like the indwelling spirit, and now the, the, the first century Christians can see like, of course, like all of this is bearing witness. The word is bearing witness to Jesus. Because listen, so Jesus shows them this. Not only do we see the revelation of the promise in the word, in the sense of the Old Testament scripture, yeah, 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 for sure. The promise was revealed throughout the scriptures, the word in that sense. But we see its primary revelation in the word, in Jesus In the beginning was the Word. The Word was made flesh, right? In Jesus himself, he's the revelation of the promise. The very revelation of God is now manifest in Jesus and is entering Jerusalem on a donkey in order to set his face to the very thing that he came to accomplish for his people. And so faced with this clear revelation, the people are once again faced with a response. And so here's where we see again the response to the promise. It's rejection or faith. And I know that you're probably at this point thinking, you just want to rewrite the same sermon material each week. But I don't have to. That's not, we land here pretty routinely because this is exactly what John is doing over and over again. This is a theme that he continues to develop for us. Right? We see this throughout. This theme is found in many sections in, in John's gospel moving forward and it's, We've seen it routinely before. Why? You should be able to say this from memory now. And maybe there'll come a point later in the series where I'll say part of it and I'll expect a response. All right? We're not super charismatic here, but um, John is shepherding his readers to respond rightly to Jesus. You know? We said this a lot. John is shepherding his readers to respond rightly to Jesus. May have been an Osborne quote that we used early on and I just kept saying it. John is shepherding his readers to respond rightly to Jesus. He's writing to God-fearing Greeks and Jewish people who are spread all over. And he's, these are people who are wondering, like, I want to know who this Christ is. And is Jesus the Christ? And so John's writing to them. And he's, he's showing them Christ. What are you going to do with the person of Jesus? And he's shepherding them with how to rightly respond to Jesus. Right? And so um, we see this glaringly in verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, one another you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, so again, we see two crowds in the passage. The crowd that had been with him when he's raised when he raised Lazarus, the crowd that's coming out of Jerusalem to see this, and many in both crowds are coming to faith, right? They're contemplating. What do we do with the person of Jesus? At the very least, they're contemplating that. And yet again, the religious leaders see this crowd, and they're pretty freaked out by it because, you know, you've got this massive crowd waving palm branches, you know. Uh, A lot of people entering into Jerusalem. There's this messianic fervor. It's at a fever pitch. And they're pretty freaked out because, like, Man, it, from the looks of it, Jesus could, he could gather a revolution then and there. Let's start a revolt now, go to the temple, overthrow these religious leaders, and make our stand against the Rome. you know? So, so um, they scorn him. But they don't scorn him because he's up to no good. They scorn him because his goodness is drawing people to himself, you know? And I think that's the kind of response that, as Christians, we we have to learn to interact within the culture. Surrounding culture will scorn Jesus, will scorn orthodox, historically orthodox Christianity, 
Not because it's not good, but because in its goodness, it draws people to a way of living that doesn't allow the culture just to do whatever it wants. Okay, so that's, that's the issue. So how do we as Christians respond? By faith, right? And, and in similar ways, so that this is, this is how we're called to respond. Like, the promise is held out to us. So this promise that we talked about of like, there's this curse of sin and death, and the promise has been revealed, you know, like that undoes death, death itself. That promise is held out to us, to you, to me right now. It's held out to the world. It's a promise that finds its root in the curse. The reason the promise exists is because we're in need of being saved from sin and death. Our sin has wrought destruction. We face death in this life and beyond because of the curse. And listen, that is not something that I think only Christians are worried about. You might be here this morning and you don't know what you believe about Jesus, but you do know that you don't want to die, you know, and that you're not sure about life out. There's just so many uncertainties related to those things, but also just a general, you know, it's easy to see evil and and, um, it's easy to see human sin, whether you call it sin or not. It's easy to see depravity on display. Again, you don't have to look far for it. You don't have to look hard to see evil and wickedness perpetrated, right? So you see that and it's like, what is, what is like a purposeful life look like? What's the, what's meaning about what, you know, like, and then what happens after death, right? So all these things, Jesus comes and he undoes that curse and he offers life everlasting. So he comes, he reveals the promise to us. He came to undo the curse and he did that by way of a cross. And here's how he did it. His body broken and his blood shed, standing in our place, receiving the just punishment we deserve for our rebellion, and the way John shepherds our response to that is by helping us see the only response is faith because there's no way that you can get out of the situation on your own. There's no way that you can read enough books, listen to enough podcasts, gain enough information, um, act uh, in a certain way that the world deems as just and merciful or whatever. There's no way that you can uh, put together a self-salvation project that's going to save you from death. Jesus does that. So the only way we respond is to come to him by faith, realizing that he's done for me what I could never do for myself, right? Response to what Jesus has done is to come to him with empty hands, not for me to fill my, this is Calvin, he says, not not for me to fill my hands up with stuff that maybe he'll be pleased with this or maybe in the world I can operate better. No, it's to put that down and realize I can't do it. Come to him with empty hands and then we get everything. If we come to him with something, we get nothing. If we come to him with, with nothing, we get everything. We were given life through his mercy and grace for us, right response to Jesus is, is faith that yes, he can, come, he can do for us what we're unable to do for ourselves, but now because of that, we can now grow in his likeness. It's sheer grace that enab- enables our life with him. And coming to the table each week reminds us of that response, reminds us as believers that this is our response. It's, it's faith in what he's done. It's faith in his body broken, his bloodshed. And for non-believers who are with us, this table is a reminder that there are those who believe and those who don't, right? And, and so the call is, put your faith in Christ today. You know, don't, don't bypass the table this morning. Right now, throw yourself on the mercies of Jesus because they're real. The promise is for you and for your children. So, so put your faith in Christ. But if this morning you're like, I, I don't know, I need, I need to ask more questions. Okay, so come forward and just observe the body, the, the, this, this represents the body of, of Christ, the blood shed. Come forward and, and, and observe. Don't touch, don't take. This is a proclamation of gospel. 
walk with us, certainly. And for those of us who believe, take these elements with you back to your seat where we'll proclaim this, this uh, promise really being shown to us centrally at, at the cross. So I invite you forward now.